The Bread and Butter podcast acknowledges the Yagara people and the Turbal people as the traditional custodians of Mainjin, the lands on which we record today. We pay our respects to the Yagara and Turbal elders, past, present, and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by How Are Productions. Did I say good? Just to get you into it one more time. Maybe just in case. Okay. Go. Bread and Better Podcast. Okay. Bread and Better Podcast. I feel like I am. Bread and Better Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Bread and Better podcast. I'm Alex. I'm a freelance writer, a business owner, and a mum of three little rat bags. On this podcast, we talk all things women's holistic health. And I'm Tegan. I'm the other half of the Bread and Better podcast. I'm a personal trainer, a sports nutritionist, and I'm also a dinkwad. <laughs> and if you don't know, that means double income, no kids with a dog. Oh, well, I'm one half of a dinkwad, I should say. <laughs> so as we have previously mentioned, we are coming from a different perspective to one another. However, our values align on the topics we discuss here. Thanks to everyone who shared the podcast to their stories after the last episode. The exposure has been great for growing our audience and odds are if you like our content, your like-minded mates will too. Speaking of women just like us, we are introducing another very special guest in today's episode, one of my best friends, Julia. Julia is quite literally one of the best people I have ever met and I'm so excited to have her here. I will be interviewing both Julia and Alex throughout this episode and it's a big one. We're going to be discussing all things mental health and motherhood. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you because the experiences of both Alex and Julia are so different, but I think that they will find some similarities in each other too. The takeaway that we want you to have from this episode is that everyone's experience with motherhood and mental health is very different. However, you are not alone. I hope this episode reminds you of that. And if you can't personally relate, it might help you in your relationships with someone that is experiencing this stuff. Mental health is such an important conversation topic, and I truly believe that it affects 100% of our population. If it's not something that you have experienced, then it's very likely that someone close to you has. In this episode, there are discussions about mental health, including suicide. We want to advise you that if you feel like it's not a good time to hear this conversation, it may be a good idea to skip the episode for now. However, it is an incredibly important conversation that you may want to return to later. We extend the reminder to anyone that is suffering from mental health or hard times that they are not alone. Please refer to the show notes for links to organisations that may be helpful. In addition to that, our DMs are always open. So we usually start the podcast with sharing the best thing we ate, but I've gone rogue on this episode. So we are recording on a Tuesday, not a Friday. So we'll still do that on Friday so you can save it for then. But I wasn't going to tell you what the segment was until we're recording. Julia has often sprung this on me, so I'm going to spring it back on her. And it is a quick fire, three things you like about yourself physically. (laughs) No time to think about them. All right, Jules, you're straight up. Let's go. I've done this a few times. Um, I like the size of my eyes. I like the size of my wrists. They're actually quite petite in comparison to the rest of my body. And I like my calves. Don't love my thighs, but I like my calf shape. That's very interesting choices. Mm. On to you, Alex. Jesus. I like my eyes, like the colour of my eyes. Um, I like my eyelashes. <laughs> I feel like I just looked at myself in the camera to think of things. I like my eyelashes, I like my eyes, and I like my, what's this called? Your De- decolletage? Decolletage. Yeah. I like that. I get a lot of compliments on that, actually, mm. especially from, like, older women. Nice. I thought you were going to say older men, so I'm glad <laughs> you clarified that. No. <laughs> no. Okay, so my turn. I'm going to say I like my hair. It's very long at the moment. I like my skin tone. I'm very lucky to have olive skin. And I like my teeth because I've just spent a lot of money on them. Um, And it's really good to see that they're progressing. So obviously this is a little bit of a challenging exercise and I would encourage you to pause the podcast now if you can and pick three things that you like because we often stare into the mirror and find things that we don't like about ourselves. So it's a very different experience to start looking for things that we do like and it is a practice that we should try and do every day. Hmm, I love that. I can't say I've really done that before. I'm very jealous of your hair. I was hoping you'd say that. It's funny because I think as well, if you can get to three, try and push to five. It's so hard to get the last two and it shouldn't be. Okay, let's do it. No, I don't want to do it. I like my nails, but particularly since I've been pregnant because they're growing really strong. And 
I like my eyelashes also because they're kind of nice and long and I don't need extensions anymore. Um, I like my nails too because I, despite all of my you health issues. You guys are just copying each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, that reminded me because, like, despite my health issues and my low iron and everything else I've got going on, I have very nice, strong nails, which is surprising. And I like my back as well. Oh, that's a good one. I like yeah. that. Um, I like my shoulders. I feel like I've had good progress with my shoulders lately. And I like my eyebrows. You do have good eyebrows. eyebrows. I mean, they are tattooed on, but I think the bones were still good before that. You've got good cheekbones too. Yeah, you both have good cheekbones actually. So as I mentioned, I'll be interviewing Alex and Julia today, and I'm really excited to hear how their experiences differ. I have a rough outline of a script here, but I expected that the conversation will flow quite easily and naturally. So let's just give this a crack. Okay, girls. So I feel like from what I know, your experience with motherhood from start to, and I'm not going to say finish because I don't think you ever finish it um, till now, you have both experienced some mental health challenges along the way, and you've had very, very different experiences. So we're going to start with you, Jules. Can you please tell us a little bit about your journey to motherhood, starting with your decision to freeze your eggs in your early 30s? Yeah. So it's funny. I've been thinking about this a little bit and I don't think I was ever somebody who even in my 20s and early 30s had this over sort of arching desire to become a mum. I did face a lot of pressure, I think, when I approached 30 about my biological clock, which I think is a really common thing for a lot of women to hear. But in my early 20s, I was in a really long-term relationship. We did buying the house, buying the dog. I had the dog for 11 years. And I never in that process thought, oh, we've got to start a family. So it was never something that was at the forefront of my mind. I think when people describe me, they kind of say I'm quite a career-driven person. That's kind of been my focus. And then, like I said, as I approached 30, you start hearing the noise externally. Like I remember getting into a cab and someone said to me, and I was single at the time, and said, do you have kids? Are you married? Do you have kids? And I was like, no, no, not married. No, don't have kids. And he turned around and he said, oh, tick, tick. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, shit. I suppose it probably is something I need to start thinking about. And it probably was in that moment that I started realising I was single. Was this the cab driver in Bali? No, it wasn't. The, no, he but said yeah, something I really remember weird that. To you too, yeah. Yeah, he did. He basically said the same thing. What was his, I can't even remember his name. It wasn't the driver we had. It was the cab driver. And remember I was in the back and I was like. And he asked why you weren't married at your age and asked what was wrong with you or something incredibly rude. Yeah, and he said, I was 32 and I remember, didn't he say something like, yeah, what's wrong with you or why aren't you married? And I was like. Yeah, it was very, very rude. rude. It was, yeah. But that's kind of, I guess, this societal pressure that happens and you feel it as a woman because you're pretty conscious of it yourself. So I remember starting to look into freezing my eggs and it wasn't necessarily because I thought that I was not going to have any, but I wanted to understand what my egg reserves were. I'd had a couple of friends that were a bit older than me that had gone down an IVF journey and had actually unfortunately discovered that they didn't have any eggs left. And I remember them sort of going down the egg donor process and all of that. And I can talk to that later, but that is a really hard thing to do in Australia as well. So I started the process probably when I was 31. Turns out I've got PCOS, which interestingly hasn't affected my fertility. And we can talk to that. So I'm very lucky, but it meant that my egg reserves were huge. So my obstetrician or fertility specialist actually sort of said to me, you're not in a rush. Like 31 is not old. If you want, let's just take your time. Maybe wait till you're a bit older and then we can just assess the process then because it's the same as the IVF journey. It's quite taxing. And I was quite anxious about the emotional toll that that process would take on me. So put it off and then went back at 33 and chose to freeze my eggs more as an insurance policy. I still didn't have this overwhelming desire to become a mum. But I thought if I meet someone, I don't want them to feel that pressure of, oh, well, she's 33. She's going to want kids. It almost became something that I could say. And I did say to my now husband on our second date, oh, don't worry, I've frozen my eggs. You know, I went down that process (laughs) and we talked about that a bit, but that played part of my decision-making process. And then also just, I thought I was still pretty career-driven. I just started my own consulting business. It was going really well. And I remember thinking I might decide at 40 to have children. I'm not ready yet. And I definitely wasn't ready to do it on my own. I wasn't freezing my eggs to think I'm going to find a donor and I want to do this on my own. That was probably the last decision in sort of terms of process. But 
when I hit 33, I remember thinking, let's just do it. Younger eggs are healthier eggs. So I went down that process and I'm so glad I did. I haven't actually used my eggs, which is interesting. I still have them on ice and I am actually lucky enough that having my daughter happened very, very easily. Um, We're pregnant again. That's happened very, very easily. And I'm going to look at donating those eggs. And it's a whole process as part of that. But that was kind of what led me to decide, I guess, to go down that journey. I was going to ask you if you'd made any thought progress on whether or not you might donate your eggs. Yeah, I will. There's a whole level of complexity on that. So I have to have go and have a DNA test and I have to do a whole bunch of medical history so that if somebody uses those eggs, they have my history. Mm. And it's a really interesting conversation. A lot of people, when we talk about donating my eggs, um, say to me, but that's your kid. Like you would have a child out there that's part you. And I really don't, for me, I don't see it like that. I think for me. Such a magical gift to be able to give to someone that really wants to have a baby. Yeah, Yeah. And for me, that egg can't survive without a home. And that like, it makes me go a bit goosey to think that someone gets that opportunity and that what will eventually become an embryo survives on that mother's blood, that mother's love, that mother's fluids, that sort of stuff. And so for me, that's not my child. It's my physical, but it's not my child. Um, And I've got a friend who ran out of eggs and didn't see it like that. And then that conversation actually led her to looking at trying to source a donor, but it's so hard. Yeah. So yeah, I will go down that process, I think. Oh, that's beautiful. So can we go into a very, very brief explanation of the process to freeze your eggs? And you already touched on the emotional side of that. Yeah. So um, if anybody's been through IVF, I really feel for you. You understand this process so much more than I do because there is this pressure or hope or expectation, I think, that exists beyond what I was doing. Mine was to get to a journey and an end point and kind of take the pressure off. But there's obviously a massive emotional journey for people that go through IVF to have a baby. So I'm not speaking on behalf of them. But obviously on your body, it's quite physically taxing. I decided to start that process when I was at my fittest. I was at my leanest, at my fittest. And it's a 14 day cycle from memory. It was a few years ago now, five or six years ago now, but it's two or three injections a day in the same spot, multiple blood tests. The injections have to be bang on at the same time. Emotionally, it was a big challenge for me to do that. I found it really embarrassing because I had to admit to myself that I was doing it because I was single, because I hadn't found a partner that I wanted to share a family with. And that was the confronting emotional thing for me about making the journey. And I'm pretty open and you'll learn today. I'm really open with a lot of the things I share, but I was very embarrassed that I was having to go down that process to the point that the experience of doing it itself wasn't as complex or as challenging as I thought. Once I'd made the decision, once I went and got up my, um, they're like Woolies cold bags full of drugs. Yeah. I put them in my fridge. That was fine. And then you just take this trigger injection at the end. My ovaries, because of my PCOS, ended up the size of navel oranges. And there was a miscommunication with my fertility specialist who said I could keep exercising. She meant walking. I was still at F45 jumping around. Um, And I remember feeling my ovaries moving, which is incredibly stupid and risky because they could have twisted and I could have lost them. But when I think the emotional thing for me came at the end, so I had a really successful egg collection in terms of the number of follicles. My body, it was, this is the other thing actually that is really important to note. Because mine was an elective procedure and I'm going to make a generalisation and assume this is a man that labelled this, but it's called you're either medically infertile If you go down the medical procedure, you're socially infertile. What? Yeah. So you tick a box that says you're socially infertile. And I think that became part of the embarrassment. Obviously, you have to tick a box that says that that's the process. That also means you don't get any medical um, funding help. You don't get any discount or you know, um, rebate or anything like that. So it was expensive. It was going to be $13,000 to $15,000. My dad is an ophthalmologist. You mentioned to a doctor that you'd family's a doctor, they give you a bit of a discount. So Mm -hmm. I did get a bit of a discount. Throughout that process, my body didn't do what it was supposed to do. My luteinizing hormone didn't peak. So we ended up managing to call it a medical, which meant it was then $5,000, not 15. But that process, like I said, 
when I was in that process, I'd lost the embarrassment. I'd just started and I'd told enough people about it. I got 17 follicles and I remember waking up thinking, yes, my body did what it's supposed to do. I was so proud, but I only got eight eggs out of the 17 follicles. And weirdly, I hadn't anticipated this, but I was so upset. Eight is still a great number, but the the process um, causes a freezing. So when you freeze eight eggs, technically probably only six to four of them survive when you defrost them potentially only six to five to three of those make it through that process. And then if you reinsert, there's not obviously a hundred percent chance that that will happen. So I felt like my body had let me down and I felt like I wasn't doing not only emotionally or socially, I wasn't in a relationship where I was going to have a family, but my physical body hadn't done what it was supposed to do. Something I had done, I'd let myself down. And I found that stayed with me for like two or three weeks afterwards. And I'm sure that that's something that women that are going through IVF really, really struggle with that feeling that their body is made to make babies and that it's it's not able to do it. 100%. And I think that's where I'm very conscious that I didn't have to take that next phase Mm. and I didn't have to try the IVF process and have the hope and then see that dashed if it, you know, the pregnancy didn't take. And I'm so conscious of those women and you're pumping your body with hormones. And I remember I took my second week of the process off work, but I wish I'd taken the time after the collection off work. I remember my fertility specialist saying, you've got to remember when you release an egg during ovulation, your body sends all of these hormones and all of this fluid to your uterus because it assumes that one egg's been released. My body thought I was having 17 babies because it had taken 17 eggs. So my hormones were just all over the place. Like it was horrific, but I'm still so glad I've done that. Yeah. And it's it's also, it's expensive. So not only is it expensive to do, I pay 600 and something dollars a year to keep them on ice. All right, let's pivot a little bit. Tell us about how you got knocked up. Well, um, <laughs> so I I met my now husband, thanks to Tegan and Sarah, I would say. I say that because I was really happy on my own. I was peak at my career. I was, I'd just come back from Europe. I did a month in Europe on my own and I remember I was like, yeah, I'm so content and I'm so happy. I was 34. Um, I had a house. I loved my job and... I'd kind of just... She did live next door to me. That's probably why she was so content. Literally in the apartment next door. <laughs> so nice. And I remember thinking, no, I'm just really good. Like, And my friends would be like, oh, have you gone on any dates? And I was like, no, not really. Just to give you a little bit of context, Julia would go on like one date every six months. <laughs> yeah. She didn't try very hard. I didn't try very hard. And then well, I wasn't interested, to be yeah. honest. I just kind of was in my own space. and I was, I was really happy. But Tegan and Sarah kind of actually almost had like an intervention (laughs) where they'd spoken about it a lot between themselves and sat down and were like, we're just worried you've given up. (laughs) And I remember thinking, ah, fine, I'll go on a date, whatever, like I'll download Hinge, which is... We were going to start scheduling them for her and just tell her where she needed to be. Download the Hinge app and just do it all 100% true. Like, so I found this guy who was <laughs> it was scouse well it wasn't the first I but he was found this guy, I found this guy. he's like love, he love said to me Mikko. today he's like you're gonna talk about me and I remember thinking oh he looks quite handsome and he's from Liverpool my long-term relationship previously was with someone from Manchester so I was like great this is a great guy because I'm never dating a northern Englishman again so like I'll go on the date it's not gonna lead anywhere but at least I'll get these girls off my back And it was kind of um, peak COVID. So like, well, no, just before COVID, I think. So a lot of the restaurants were kind of closed or the bars weren't really open, which we actually probably credit to our relationship lasting because we were just like, it wasn't just like a big boozy night. We actually went on a walk and we just started talking and we talked for two and a half hours. I think I got like 23,000 steps. I was anally measuring my steps at the time. (laughs) Took my dog just in case. This guy was a real weirdo. And I remember leaving and I came, because we lived next door to each other, literally finished the date, came in to your apartment and Rhett and Tegan were like, how'd it go? And I'm like, yeah, actually it went really well and I think I'm going to see him again. And then, yeah, we saw each other a few times, but still both of us were like, we're not going to 
we don't really want to date anyone. Um, he's four years older than me. He'd just been, in, well, not just, he'd previously been engaged and he was same sort of thing, like dating to probably keep himself busy. Yeah, busy, busy, friends off his back. Yeah, pretty much. But I think, you know, when you know you've met someone and it just is so easy and it's so clear and you can just talk for hours and you feel safe just to be yourself for the first time in any relationship I'd ever been in. Clearly you don't stop dating. Although I did say that I was going to not date him anymore and Tegan again was like, just go on one more date. Anyway, that's how we met. It's not how we obviously had a baby, but (laughs) we then decided pretty quickly things just from then escalated. When we were in, we were in. We moved in together pretty quickly. We decided we were going to buy a house. And I remember when we first started dating, having the conversation about kids. And he was like, I don't know if I want kids. And I said, I'm kind of the same. Like I'm, I've frozen my eggs and he'd brought that topic up because I told him on our second date. <laughs> but I was like, look, I've done that as an insurance policy. Do I want them enough to go and do them on my own? Absolutely not still. I think one day if I'm with someone and I think I want a family with this person, that's when I'll decide that I want children. And yep, that was kind of the last thing we spoke about. And then we moved in together. We were trying to buy a house and we just started talking about it. I think Michael said to me, oh, you know, maybe like, should we think about having a kid? And I was like, what? And then it just felt right. I can't explain it. It was just really different. And all of a sudden we thought, okay. And I remember we thought, yep, we're just going to start trying. Because I had PCOS, I expected the process to take a long time. I thought I was going to need some fertility help and it didn't take a long time. We were very blessed and we felt pregnant immediately, first time trying. And I remember he was out with his mates the day I found out I was pregnant and he'd rang me and said, oh, Steve's in town. I'm going to catch up with Steve and Tip. And I was like, that's, yeah, that's fine. And then I said to him, can you maybe come home? Like, and he's like, oh, why? This is so not like you. I was like, oh yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and he came home quite pissed. It was still early. It was like 7.30. And he's like, I've been thinking about it. Stuff it. Let's just buy a house, have a baby. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I still didn't tell him that. And I'd have told him the next day when he was sober, but he was stoked and we were just so lucky. But yeah, that's how Layla came around. And then can you tell us you're pregnant at the moment? Yes. Um, can you tell us about your experience falling pregnant a second time and maybe what you did while you were pregnant? Yeah. So again, like I said, we've worked out, we're pretty fertile. PCOS, I need to talk to my fertility specialist. If I hadn't seen the ovaries with the follicles, I'd be like, I don't think I have it. My daughter is 16 months now. So when she was kind of 12 months, I think we thought, and we're a bit older, like I'm 38 now, Michael's 42. So we thought if we're going to do it again, we need to keep bit pretty tight. But yeah, we decided we'll just not try this month. We're just going to kind of like see what happens this month. And we're going to start trying next month because the month we were talking about was June and I was running the marathon on the 2nd of July. And I remember saying to Tegan and Fraz when we were running the marathon, I'm pretty sure I'm getting my period. Like I'm, this is going to be so frustrating. Oh yeah. You thought you were going to get it like the day of. The day. Yeah. Cause I had like just dull aches and I was like timing wise. Yep. Turns out I was pregnant and I ran the marathon while I was pregnant, which I wouldn't have done. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, hmm. Wow. So Julia, very, very fertile, which is such a blessing, as you said. Alex, would you like to share a little bit with us about your fertility experience? Because I think it's a little bit different in part. So actually, I, big difference, wanted kids. Age of 21, Kevin and I, the day we got together, I was like, right, I want a baby. (laughs) Lucky we'd been best friends for a really long time and he (laughs) knew who I was as a person. So he wasn't terrified, but (laughs) I literally wanted a baby. The first day we got together, that's all I wanted, thought about it constantly. Anyway, Obviously, he wanted to get his ducks in a row. He's still at uni. We were very young. Uh, We got married when I was like 24, moved overseas. And then one night it was Christmas and we were watching The Holiday. I don't don't think you'll know. I know that one. It's the only one I can think I can reference. Yes. So in it. It's a house um, Yeah. Yes. Yes. And um, it's a truth law. Has these really cute little girls. And Kev turned to me and was like, yeah, I want a baby. Because like he's a single dad and there's, it's really a lot of cute moments. And I was like, what? Are you serious? And he was like, yeah. And I'm like, fuck yeah. Let's go. Let's go. (laughs) And I fell pregnant instantly. So, which he was really surprised. He thought it would take a little while. So we kind of wrapped things up in New Zealand, came home, had Oscar and 
that was just the happiest time in my life. The little newborn experience, it was everything I'd ever wanted. So I was just stoked. And then as soon as he turned six months, I was like, let's go again. I always wanted to have four kids. I wanted to have them before I was 30. I just knew that that's what I wanted. I wanted all boys. I just, that's how I saw our life going. Yeah. So Oscar was six months. We started trying straight away and it was taking quite a while. After five months, I fell pregnant. uh, And then at nine weeks, I had a miscarriage, which already the fact, I think because I'd fallen pregnant so quickly with Oscar, I expected it would happen really quickly again. So, and I'm a really impatient person. So within every month, like I'd already gotten to the four months and I was getting pretty depressed already that it wasn't happening. So obviously we were really happy when it did. And yeah, at nine weeks, I knew it was happening. Like I know my body so well. I woke up that morning and I was like, oh, I don't feel pregnant anymore. Oh God. Yeah. And we went for our scan and yeah, there was no heartbeat. But then after you have a miscarriage, you have to wait. Well, I know in my case, you're told to wait six weeks before you can try again, which was really hard for me. Like obviously having miscarriage was really like emotionally trying, but it was the having to wait the six weeks that took the biggest toll on me because I just felt like I was losing so much time. So, but like I was fixated on it. Like it's all I wanted. I wasn't working at the time. So it's all I thought about. So then we started trying again at the six week mark, like instantly. And it was taking a few months again. And so we went and saw a fertility specialist. I had a really great GP who everyone in my life knows who she is because I was, I just loved her. She was so thorough and lovely. And even though I was young, she just took it really seriously. She was like, this is something that you want. And there's no explanation as to why you're not falling pregnant. So it is something you should take seriously. And so I went and saw a fertility specialist and the first person I saw basically laughed at me and was like, you are so young. You've got all the time in the world. I don't know why you're worrying about this. And I was just gutted because that appointment was really expensive. Yeah. And I just felt like he obviously thought I was being dramatic or silly and just didn't take it seriously at all. So I went back to my GP and I got a referral to a different doctor at Green Slopes and she took it really seriously. We did all the tests. I had PCOS as well, which I found out through her which I had never had any symptoms really. So that was a bit of a shock as well. And I started taking Clomid Mm. uh, for the first, like we did look at doing the IVF, but we thought because, you know, I was young and stuff, we would do, and everything looked okay with me and Kev. So we did the Clomid first and it was horrific. I've heard that. Yeah. It really, really affected me mentally a lot. I was crying every day. It was horrible. Physically, you know, I just felt uncomfortable all the time. There was a lot going on. I was in quite a bit of pain and I was producing a lot of follicles to the point where the fertility specialist was like, I think we need to stop. stop." And I was like, no, nah, we're going to keep going. So I gave it another month and my ovaries went into hyperstimulation. That almost happened to me. Yeah. And so I ended up in the ED mm. on my birthday, which was awful. I was in so much pain. I was in there for a few days. And so then obviously I had to stop physically. I couldn't keep doing that. And that was gutting because then I had to stop everything again. And then the fertility specialist was like, I think we should just take a little bit of time off, let you recover. And then we'll start looking at, you know, IVF if that's what you want to do. But I think you should try for a few months naturally. And I was just devastated. Like, as you kind of touched on before, I really felt like a total failure. I was like, this is the literally seems like the easiest thing in the world. I know a lot of people at that stage around me were falling pregnant accidentally. It's because nobody talks about how hard it is. Yes. So we assume that it's so easy. Yeah. 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 A lot of people around me were falling pregnant accidentally. And I was like, I hate to admit it, so resentful. I was like, here I am. I want a baby so badly. And it's just not happening for me. And I just couldn't understand why at the time. But yeah, we kind of paused all of that stuff and just tried naturally again. And so a year after the miscarriage, I fell pregnant with Magnolia. And that was like a really stressful pregnancy, which I think we'll go into later. And she was born again, happiest time of my life. I finally had what I wanted. So yeah, everything was really good again. So when Magnolia was six months old, we were really keen to start trying again. And because it had taken so long the previous time, uh, yeah, we just wanted to start, you know, going straight away. We decided not to try any distance because the Clomid had obviously ended really badly. We 
didn't want to go into IVF because we just didn't think that it was really good for my mental health. And I, I didn't want that to impact me so much that it would impact Oscar and Magnolia. So yeah, we just tried naturally and it took three years, mm. which it was, yeah, it was pretty hard. I it definitely wasn't as fixated on it as I was when we were trying to have Magnolia. If that was the case, I would have stopped because that was heartbreaking. But yeah, it was a really long time. I did get quite depressed about it, but yeah. Anyway. It's funny because one of the things that you said then was like you felt when you felt really resentful towards people and that's really hard to admit, right, because yeah. you, you're also kind of so happy for them. Yeah, and uh, I felt really guilty because I, I have friends that were going through IVF at the time and I felt really naturally, really easily first time. And I remember feeling really guilty that it had happened so quickly and so easily and I'd had friends that had miscarriages. Um, my second pregnancy, the first 12 weeks was super anxious because, and I hadn't felt that in the first time, I think, because I hadn't experienced that. So I can only imagine what that's like if you've been through a miscarriage and you're pregnant again. But yeah, the the resentment is so normal, I would imagine, because I felt it in the opposite direction. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, yeah, it is definitely hard to admit because I was so excited for those people in my life. But I think, yeah, I think it's supernatural and mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It just, it was even hard to be around when they, like, had the baby because even though I had my, like, own baby, I was still like, oh, I just want it so badly. And it's so out of your control, mm. which I think, like, for me, my personality is very hard to come to terms yeah. with. So, yeah, after it took three years to fall pregnant, we had Sol and I had a horrible pregnancy and I ended up having to have an emergency C-section. So I had gone in to be induced. I was induced with Oscar and Magnolia. So I was very happy to be induced this time because I knew exactly how it was going to go. I felt like took a lot of comfort in that. So it was going all the way it was meant to go. It was exactly the same as Oscar and Magnolia. I was stoked. And then I think it was like seven o'clock in the morning. The midwife was like, I'm just going to check everything out, see how it's going. Have I told you this story? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is funny. Well, the way the way it happens in my mind is funny. Yeah. She's like, I'm just going to see how you're going. I thought, okay, cool. Anyway, she did the examination and... Sorry, but because it's a podcast, people can't see that you just like stuck your fingers. <laughs> well, we might use yeah. that audio. I love the fact you're like, they did the examination. Yeah, and she goes, oh, God. And I was like, what? There's a little hand there. And a I hand? Was, a hand. Like he like reached out and grabbed oh her finger. She put her hand in he, his little hand was there. Could you feel that? I, I had an epidural, oh, yeah, so, so I couldn't feel thing. anything. Oh, with this third one, I was like, you give me the epidural before you put me on that Sintone drip. I know what I want. I don't want to feel anything. I had wanted a natural birth. It didn't happen, and we can talk about that, But yeah. and that was really hard for me. But when I say natural birth, I was like, if I get to the hospital and you've missed my drug window, I will sue you, <laughs> like, legitimately. So, yeah, yeah. When I was having Oscar, I was like, oh, I've got the highest pain threshold, which <sighs> my friend who's an ED doctor laughs every time I say that. But I was like, I've got such a high pain threshold. I don't need this. And because it was an induction and they put this in tone drip, like your body doesn't have time to adjust to the contractions. And I was so stubborn. It got to like the five hour point and nothing was happening. Like wasn't advancing at all because the pain, like, cause I was like holding on so tight. And the midwife was like, you have to have a freaking epidural or nothing is going to happen here. And I was like, Oh, anyway, I did. And that was the best, the best thing is ever. Yeah, it was so chill imagine. after that. I loved it. So with Magnolia and then obviously with Sol, I was like, you just hook me up. Yeah. And anyway, he's stuck his hand out. She's like, I think we can do it. I think we're going to be okay. I'm going to try and shuffle his hand back in. Oh <laughs> anyway, so she tries. And then all of a sudden all the computers start lighting up and she just pushes a button and she stays very calm. And then... Yeah, all of these doctors and everything just rush in and all of a sudden they're prepping me for an emergency C-section, which I just wasn't prepared for at mm. all, obviously. But he then, in that me- in the meantime, he stuck his whole arm out. So then it, everything... Out? Out. His whole arm. Holy fuck. Yeah. I just imagine it's like every dad's worst Hell. fear when yeah. having sex with their pregnant wife is that, like, they're just going to get this yes. little hand that grabs yeah. onto yeah. the end of their penis. <laughs> <laughs> So true. Um, but, yeah, so he stuck his whole arm out. I had to have an emergency C-section, which, uh, yeah. This is awful. wild. Yeah, yeah. So You'll never unsee Alex with her head. <laughs> a hand? No, 100%. I should do that for Halloween. Oh, That's God. So funny. 
You know how people can make those cakes? There's like yes. horrific cakes. You need yeah, one for Kev. Yeah. yeah. We should do that for Sol's 18th oh, birthday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for Sol's birthday. That's so funny. That's so funny. That's you. <laughs> this is how you came out. Uh, anyway, so after that experience uh, and just everything I'd been through, obviously I would, if I, I had all the money in the world and a super healthy body, I would keep having kids forever. I would have so many. But obviously after everything I went through, had to come to the decision that I was very happy with three. That's our family complete. So in our very, very first Get to Know Us episode, I remember Alex mentioned that the first six months after having her kids were the happiest of her life. Jules, in your honest reaction and don't hold back, how did that make you feel? I remember this verbatim. Like literally you said, Oh, after I had my first kids, the first six months was the happiest of my life. I felt like a superwoman. I could do anything. I was like, yep, this is amazing. I laughed. Like I've got a bit of a nervous laugh. And I remember being in the car and I was like, oh. (laughs) Um, And I thought, amazing. So not my experience. And then Tegan said, that's really interesting because I've got some friends that I think would say they had a very different experience to that. Yeah, I completely, like, we really want two kids. We really want Layla to have a sibling. I'm an only child. So for me and with what sort of, I guess, my experience was growing up, there's a fair bit of mental health in my family and I want her to have someone to lean on for that. I didn't. But it took me until she was probably 11 months, 10 months to be like, okay, yeah, I think I want another kid. I was one and done for like the first 10 months of her life, 100%. It was the hardest thing I've ever been through, like emotionally. And I can talk about that now if you want me to. So I, like I said at the beginning, like I was pretty independent. I was pretty career orientated. Um, I just... I'd given up my consulting gig to come in-house for a company that um, I still work for and was given a pretty senior role, loved it. My job as a development manager, I run a lot of teams, I run design meetings, I negotiate $100 million construction contracts with big burly builders, right? And so I'm generally the one that's in control of my life. Um, My pregnancy was also pretty hard, not the first bit. I was stoked. We were so happy. It was a very healthy pregnancy. I didn't get sick. My pregnancy symptom is insomnia, which I think potentially plays with how I feel emotionally through my pregnancy because obviously lack of sleep is a huge killer for anybody. And everyone likes to say, oh, it's just your body preparing you for when the baby's here Mm. and I want to smack them in the face. It's very different. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of depression in my family, to be completely honest. My grandmother took her life. My uncle took his life. My mum's been hospitalised. My auntie's been hospitalised for attempted suicide. So on that side of my family, I'm very, very conscious of mental health and depression. I've never really been impacted by it throughout my life. I think on the other side of my family... They are like so logical emotions just don't exist. So I'm really lucky I'm this kind of in between. I can feel I feel emotions deeply, but I'm generally pretty on top of my mental health, I think. But pregnancy was different. You know, I've since worked out it, particularly my second pregnancy, that pregnancy hormones aren't very good for me and we can talk about that. But my mum and I, for a whole bunch of reasons, stopped talking for four months of my pregnancy. I remember... Oh, I didn't expect to get emotional. I remember thinking that it was something I was going to do on my own. And I remember thinking I'm going to be to hospital and I don't know if my mum's going to be there. And this is the biggest thing of my life. And it was really scary. And it was quite an intense period in terms of why we weren't talking. Um, I have an amazing support network of very, very, very good friends. And they say it's true when they say a village, you know, raises your your child. It's so true. Um, I, because I think have experienced that with my family for my whole life, I often don't really talk about it as probably openly as it's just what I experienced, just part of my life. So when I wasn't talking to my mum though, I found that very, very difficult. And I'm pretty sure it was Tegan instigated this book to go around to some of my closest female friends, mums and non-mums, about why I would be a brilliant mum and about motherhood tips and saying that although I felt really alone, I wasn't. And I remember I didn't, I had no idea. And this book went around. They posted it to each other from the Gold Coast and Brisbane. My townsville friends um, 
And I had no idea. And I remember getting this package and it said, we want you to record. And it was my friend Danielle was writing. I recognised it instantly. She was obviously the last to write in the book. And I was like, oh, Danielle sent me this thing. So I put this video up because I was told to record it and I opened it and I was sobbing. And Michael sobbed and we just like, it just made me feel comfortable for the last bit of my pregnancy in a way that I hadn't experienced. And I still I remember thinking, I don't know what I've done to I don't deserve this. I don't deserve these friends. And yet I felt like my daughter was going to come into a world that was really safe and that was really important for me. So that's, you know, we've still got that book in her room and we look at it and it's got mum on the front, mama on the front. It's beautiful. And my mum and I eventually started talking throughout my pregnancy. So she was there and she's got a beautiful relationship with my daughter and it's this pregnancy is very different experience. But I think a lot of what I was going through I didn't realise was probably a bit of perinatal depression as well. I was seeing a psychologist throughout my pregnancy. I'm really open about that. My obstetrician actually recommended her. She's brilliant. And so I had all of these kind of like coping mechanisms. But one of the things I was really scared about was when my daughter was here, I was really scared to have a girl, to be honest. I really wanted a boy because that was different to what I knew. Because of my childhood, I felt this overwhelming responsibility to carry her mental health. And I never wanted Layla and I still to this day, we talk about if she sees me sad, I'm like, mum's sad, but that's okay. You know, this is very normal and um, this is not your responsibility. Like you can see me sad and I think that's so healthy for you, but she's 16 months old. She doesn't understand this, but it's so important to me that she never feels responsible to fix anybody, anybody's health, mental health or happiness. So my pregnancy kind of was... I think at some level I kind of expected that having been that control freak and having had that experience but then repaired with my mum closer to my daughter's birth, I thought I was going to be okay. And I remember someone saying to me, don't freak out if you don't feel a bond with your kids straight away. Some One of our friends, Laura, said to me, I didn't really feel that with Callum until he was like five or six months old. So that gave me a bit of, I guess it took a bit of the pressure off that And I had to have a cesarean. I had wanted a natural birth, but she was breech and she was transverse and she didn't engage. Um, And I remember them pulling her out and putting her on my neck and right up on my face and I couldn't see. And Michael just looked so happy and like, oh, he was like almost crying. He was so happy. But I just remember being like, oh my God, there's this mucus covered blob on my chest and I can't see her. That being said, that first week in hospital for us was the best week of my whole life. It was like this bubble. I've never felt so much love in my whole entire life, particularly for my husband. Who I just was like, I've never loved anything like I've loved this. And then we went home and she cried the whole night, the first night home. She was an angel in hospital. That's our fault. If you know, if you don't know about teats, don't give a five day old baby a four month plus teat. So she got colic. We didn't know. I rang the hospital the next day. I was like, you've sent me home too early. And they're like, you're fine. But it spiraled and it spiraled pretty badly. And I remember sitting on the couch and thinking to myself, and it's so hard to admit this out loud, but I remember thinking, what have I done? I don't want to be a mum. Like I I loved her and I knew that and I wanted her, but the other part of me was like, what have I done? I've been really fit. Like I said, I fell pregnant. You know, we just run the first marathon we've run. I've run two. So it was peak fitness. I was really happy with my body. It was COVID. Tegan and I lived next door to each other. We'd do random training sessions all the time and I didn't recognise myself. I My nipples cracked. Um, I had bleeding nipples. One of the challenges for me was that I was the same weight a week and a half after I had Layla than I was when I went in because my body just produced so much fluid. And for me, I'm like, but I've lost a three and a half kilo baby, a placenta, all my fluid, how am I still the same weight? And that became all consuming. I remember walking through the house and seeing these white drops on the floor and I was like, what is that? And I realised I was leaking milk on the floor. And then I had this conversation with my work colleague who just had his performance review and he was like, yeah, it's really good. You know, I've, just, I've got a pay rise. And I was at home flashing these flashcards to my kid who is four weeks old and is like oh, oh, on the floor and thinking... I have just really fucked up my whole life and I knew I wanted her and I knew it would get better in my head. Anyway, Tegan came over one day and I remember she said to me, do you think you've got a bit of PND? And I knew it, but because I'd got such a history in my family of depression, it's the last thing I wanted. I was like, shit, (laughs) you know, this like I've 
I had been on antidepressants once before in my life and that was after my mum had tried to end her life and obviously I needed them at that time. But it was just this this thing that I didn't want to admit to myself. And I think I knew it and my psychologist was also, she. I remember she said, I'm so upset with because I ended up emailing her. Michael found me in the ensuite and I was in the ensuite and I was in the corner and Layla was in her bassinet in her room and she was crying and he'd just come home from work because he just had to go back to work and I was a mess in the corner of the ensuite and Mike was like, what are you, what's wrong? What's going on? Where's and I was like, just take her away. Like I can't do this. I don't know what to do. And I couldn't communicate to him um, and we we communicate so openly and so brilliantly and I, I, I'm not a creative person. I've never written a poem in my life and for some reason I wrote this poem because it was the only way I could explain to him how I felt and how my body had changed and how I couldn't wash my hair when I wanted to wash my hair and I couldn't go to the toilet when I wanted to go to the toilet and my in my head my career was done and I was at home. He could still go to the gym. He was riding home from work and all of a sudden I'd just lost myself and I remember saying to him, I'm the bottom of the pecking order. You don't understand and... I felt where you felt you were like a superwoman, I felt the opposite, just the complete opposite. And I sobbed for, I think for, I don't want to say months, it was weeks. I remember Michael's parents came up probably when Layla was about eight weeks old and we started going out, we got out of the house and I felt a bit, bit better. And I think that was probably the path to start my recovery. I joined a mother's group, which I had always said I would never do. But I, that was good to get out on a Friday at 10am. I had somewhere to be. So just having somewhere to be helped. And obviously I'm very conscious of that experience this time because, you know, I'm now 16 weeks pregnant. I have started to recognise some of the same despondent feelings throughout this pregnancy. That has kind of taken me back because I didn't, I thought I was really looking forward to getting the chance to do it again and getting the chance to have that newborn phase and know that it ends and see this time we're having another girl and see this little girl at squishy four weeks old and just embrace that and think, oh, my, I've only got this for like seven weeks, whereas I thought that was my life forever. And, yeah, so I think I, I wasn't anticipating getting hit with a bit of perinatal depression this time, but I think I've recognised those feelings are there. I've had a couple of really bad days, but my husband is so across it. He's so aware of it. He, like, literally, I had this massive meltdown in the house two weeks ago and he snapped back at first because I was like, there's just mess everywhere. And he said to me, he, so he snapped back at first and then he instantly was like, this is next level, this is different. He sort of said to me, do you want me to take Layla out? Like, what can I do to help? And I just sat on the floor and collapsed and I was like, I don't know. I don't know how you can help me. He was so worried that he almost called some of my friends and was about to email our obstetrician and I think he left and I just kind of cried it out for a bit and I felt so much better. The awareness I've got of it this time is really helping me and I don't think it's something that's debilitating but it's scary to have those feelings come up again, I guess, at some level. So, yeah, very different experience to yours. So I remember thinking, oh, (laughs) that must be nice. (laughs) And obviously you've spoken a little bit about how you're feeling with your pregnancy at the moment. How are you feeling as a mum at the moment? Oh, my God, I love being a mum. Like (laughs) I'm obsessed with my kid. Like that and taking things that happened a bit earlier but because we were talking about this the other day, I reckon really from 12 months old like is when something changed and she is hilarious. Like I'm at work now and I'm like, okay, i got to go. I want to go pick up my daughter. Like I just want to be with her. It's harder. Work for me was actually a help as well. We had to put Layla in daycare but I found the gap between I, I guess I found the space of going home, having had a break, made me a much better mum. I yeah. was so much more patient. I was so much more engaged. But now I like, like she's at home now and I'm like, oh, damn, because she's got these pigtails in today. She looks so cute. So <laughs> I'm obsessed with her. And I guess that was the takeout for me is that I know it changes. And, you know, if someone has sort of had that experience of not having that connection straight away, I'm so glad someone said that to me. Another one of my friends, Marcia, said to me, I'm not a newborn mum, Jules, I'm a toddler mum. And I didn't get that. I totally get that. Like it just, yeah, it's a completely different experience. I mean, I'm shitting myself about having two and I'm very anxious about that newborn phase again. But yeah, oh, best thing. Yeah. Hardest, but best thing. Yeah. 16 months is fun. It's so fun. Yeah. Like, Sol's 18 months now, and it's 
it's the best. Like it's scary because I feel like my whole life is spent keeping him from injuring himself. Yeah. Because he's so full on. But, yeah, the best. They start talking and they're funny. Like they have like a sense of humour they want to make you laugh. Humor. Yeah, and like yeah. she'll say things to me now. Like this morning she woke up and she goes, Mummy, Daddy, where? Yeah. Where Daddy? And so we can communicate yeah. and it's just like it's, yeah, it's next level. It's really yeah. good. It's cute that she responds like that to you. Sol wakes up and looks at me and goes, Dad! <laughs> and then screams and walks around the house looking for him. I'm like, yeah, cool. I've just breastfed you for the last four hours. But, yeah, where's yeah. your dad? No worries. Yeah, no, it's cute. So, Alex, on the last episode you disclosed with us that you are diagnosed with bipolar. What did this diagnosis mean when you were pregnant and when you had your kids? We will be back with part two next week. So we want to leave you with something a little bit light today after such an intense conversation. We've come up with a cute little segment and we're going to ask each other one fun question. So I'm going to let you go first because okay. you looked at your phone and then you looked directly at my hair. So I'm very intrigued. For the rest of your life, would you rather go without shampoo or without toothpaste? Oh, that's so easy. Shampoo. I barely wash my hair. Ah. <laughs> The other one was going to be, would you rather for the rest of your life have a mullet or have a ponytail? Easy, you just have a ponytail. Yeah, I'm, I I love a ponytail. But most of my life is spent with my hair in a ponytail because I don't wash it very often, so it's always dirty. <laughs> that sounds terrible. I think it's better to not, like... It's good for your hair. I yeah. only wash my hair once a week. Yeah, I only wash my hair once a week too. With the swimming, I've had to wash it more. Yeah, you do when you swim, obviously. yeah. yeah. Okay, what's your question for me? My question for you is, what is your karaoke song? Look, I would never, actually, I wouldn't say I would never sing karaoke because I've done it before under duress. But this is something that I think about all the time. Yeah. Because you know when you're singing along to a song really loudly in the car and then you think, I sound pretty good. Yeah. And then you turn it down and you're like, no, actually (laughs) don't. I'm going to turn that right back up. Yeah. Um, do you know what I think would be cool to be able to slay? And yeah. this is so random. Yeah. You know that Say La Vie song? Oh, yeah. Say or <laughs> I wish I could sing and I, I've been at Ben's Vietnamese when yeah. someone has sung it and it's just gone absolutely off and yeah. everyone's just like crowded the dance floor. Yeah. It's like um, that Whitney Houston want to dance with somebody oh, song. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And people just go nuts if the person can sing it well. Yeah. We've had multiple family birthday parties where we've had a karaoke machine and my little sister Eilish and I don't get off it. Like you can't boot us off at all. And we sing so loudly in the car. But um, there's so many songs that I think I can sing well. And this is relevant to the episode because we have just had Julia on. Julia and I have known to have a few too many bevs and then do a duet of Missy Higgins, the special too. Oh, that song makes me cry. I don't love that song. But, yeah, that's cute. Our song, Eilish and I, we have two, but our biggest one. And I wish mine was cool. None of those songs are cool cool at all. All right, these two are going to make yours sound like the coolest songs in the world. Our first one is very specifically the Glee version of Total Eclipse of the Heart. Oh, that's so good. I loved Glee. (laughs) I loved Glee too. Yeah. I had all the CDs. But, yes, so we belt that out. And I definitely don't sound good, but I would do it at karaoke. And the other one is Love Bug by the Jonas Brothers. I don't know that song. What? Okay, I just listened to it in the car and um, it makes me so happy. So, yeah, if we go karaokeing, karaokeing, I'm going to make that a word. If we go to karaoke together. Karaoke would be on my list of things that make me very uncomfortable. We're going to do that. Mm. Watch this face, season three, guys. Season three, there's some uncomfortable challenges coming up. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. We were trying to think because there's so many things that make me uncomfortable and we're trying to think of some fatigue and, and there you go. Yeah, that's that's up there. And if I'm like I can't drink beforehand either, hey. Nah, it's definitely well, you don't not. really drink. So I don't drink. just me so drinking by myself. <laughs> oh, no, we should take some friends. So, uh, if I have to be sober, that's that's even more Let's book out a room. We're going to book out a karaoke room. Oh, if room. just our friend. No, nah, that's still, oh. Oh, let's go to a pub where they've got it, like, and then you have to sing it in front of everyone. 
Thanks for tuning in to the first half of this really important conversation. We will be back next Monday with the second half of our chat with Julia. In the meantime, we would absolutely love it if you could head to Apple Podcasts and leave a written review of the pod on there so that new people can see what we are all about. We have been receiving beautiful messages from you guys about how much you are loving it and we're so appreciative. Thanks, guys, and we'll see you next week.